All right, so I, this is part five of a five parts, I think it's a five part series, we'll see. Keeps growing. The first four parts are available on, if you listen to podcasts, that podcast is entitled Where the Battle Runs Thick. If you want to find the ones preceding this, leading up to what we're talking about today, last week we talked specifically about some biblical principles for finding a spouse. So that was part four. Um, one more time, that's where the battle runs thick. And this is not just a plug because I want to get more listeners to my podcast. If it can be helpful to you, it's available if you want to hear it, if you missed it. Okay, so today I want to talk about the, the broader context has been the long game, playing the long game in our walk as Christians, seeking to be faithful to God over the long term because we serve a God who works big picture and not just, I mean, sometimes he works miracles like that, but his general pattern throughout history has been one of transformation over time, even in our own lives. He, occasionally you hear wonderful testimonies of, I was addicted to heroin and then boom, God saved me. Most of the time, though, the Christian life is a life of mortification. One of the, the, I think it was one of the Puritan pastors said, he is no Christian who does not walk daily over the bellies of his own lusts. So there's a consistent walk with Christ, a progress. That's the way that God works. So um, what I want to talk about today is sharpening versus splintering. How do we handle disagreement within the body of Christ? If we're going to play the long game together, how, that's going to require relationships, and if we're going to have relationships, that's going to have friction because we're all sinners, and not just because of sin, but also because of personality differences. So how do we handle that friction? But before I launch into that, I wanted to tie up a couple of, of other thoughts on what we discussed last week, because after last week, I had somebody talk to me about uh, something else that I just wanted to address a little more thoroughly than I did last week. So I'm going to go really fast through this because I want to focus on the conflict resolution, okay? But last week we talked about spouse, uh, spouse finding and biblical principles for that. So I want to revisit the idea of attraction. I mentioned it very briefly last week, but I want to go into it a little bit more real quick. Attraction does matter, and it's not something that should be dismissed. It's not wrong for attraction to factor into whether or not you would pursue a relationship with someone. And you can see that in scripture in places like Song of Solomon, which is very much not a Stoic book. Also, even if this is a picture of Christ in the church, right? Is it a good picture of Christ in the church if one or both parties is not really interested in the other one? Like, well, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but I just as soon not be around them. Well, that's not, that's not a good picture of Christ's love for his bride, of the bride's love for her husband. Okay. However, attraction is not the consideration. So the question that each of us has to ask is, what does the Lord want me to do? We have to walk humbly with and serve Jesus. So angelic choirs and fleets of internal butterflies are nice, but they're not necessarily required, but it is something that should factor in. So sometimes you do have to invest first and reap dividends later. We've heard the stories of the, the pioneers. The cowboys go west and then they, they, they send back for a mail order bride. Well, is that right or wrong? You walk it out between you and the Lord. But there was a recognition of, hey, I, I need a wife. There's no women out here. So there's, 
that's not a, a bad consideration. God said it's not good for man to be alone. So you have to balance these principles. So um, for me, I got to experience both. There was definitely attraction, especially in the first years of my relationship with my wife. By the time it came around to my courtship time, for me, it was more a matter of conviction that I just really felt like I knew this is the woman that the Lord has for me. And so that was, man, I can happily tell more about that. I don't have the time to launch into it right now. But so I've gotten to see and experience both to where when it came time for me to actually court my wife, it was not attraction driven. There was still attraction there. There was a history of attraction, but it was more a matter of, I, I just, I know, I know this is what God wants me to do. Okay. So that's my testimony. So you'll hear people talk about learning to love their spouse. Okay. That is an option. That is an option on the table along with being madly in love from the outset. That's also an option on the table. The question is, walk humbly with Christ, follow him, be open to God's leading, okay? If you've already determined to yourself that nobody you know is even possibly attractive, then you have to count the cost of being that picky because the question is, is that how God wants you to be thinking? Or is that more a matter of, I want to marry Brad Pitt and nobody here is... Nobody here is Brad Pitt, and so nobody could ever possibly attract him, or vice versa for a guy. Pick your favorite Hollywood starlet, okay? So count the cost of being that picky. Attraction is a factor, but it's not the factor. And if your standards for attraction are, I need to be physically knocked over by their presence when they walk into the room, then it's going to be difficult to meet that standard, okay? Because frankly, if Brad Pitt walked into the room, he'd just look like a normal guy. The reason he looks like a movie star is because he's on a Hollywood set playing a scripted role of a hero with epic music in the background. And that doesn't happen with normal people. Okay. So staying single, is that less complicated? Absolutely. Is it wrong? Not necessarily if that's what God is calling you to do. But it is wrong to stay single just because it's less complicated. If God is calling you into maturity and into a life of marriage, a life of self-sacrifice with a spouse and with children, and you're staying where you are because it's your comfort zone, then that's a problem. Okay, so the question again, where does Jesus want you? And what about the joys and the sanctification, both the joys and the sanctification that you might be missing? Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God, okay? I think we're a little bit spoiled. Shame on us if our prosperity keeps us from growing up. And by growing up, I mean growing into marriage and parenthood. Because we live in a day and age where we can stay single and it's easy to stay single. Throughout history, that wasn't the case. You needed a spouse. The, the woman needed a husband or she wasn't provided for. The man needed a wife because he didn't have, what's, what's he going to do? He can't build a home by himself. Life was, was empty, was incomplete. He can't be a full man without a wife. Well, that's God's design. We're called to desire to make these households. So um, there have been times in history where we needed a spouse and we don't live in one of those times. Let's not let that make us lazy and just hang out in our comfort zone. And that also requires that we do have to get to know people of the opposite gender. We're called to relate as brothers and sisters in all purity. First Timothy 5.2. Friendships can't blossom into romance if there aren't friendships. And sometimes we in our pursuit of purity, get to, an, get to this place where it's like, well, if guys and girls talk, then they're going to be impure with their thoughts. And that, well, that's not biblical. Scripture says, brothers and sisters in all purity. That means love. You're called to love your brothers and sisters. Get to know them. Care about them. I wouldn't recommend heart-to-heart 
you know, one-on-one counseling sessions with somebody you're not married to, but you should absolutely be able to talk to and get to know and interact with brothers and sisters in the Lord. So all of that without taking away from the fact that attraction does matter. It is important and it's not a matter of, well, he or she checked my boxes, so I guess I have to marry them. No, no, you don't have to. If you've given them a fair shot, maybe you've even done some intentional get-to-know-you time, you're open to God's leading, and you still can't bear the thought of snuggling with the person, then let's be honest, that's probably not a good idea because... You, you don't you don't want to be married to somebody that you kind of wince every time they walk in the room. Okay, that, that is a concern, okay? Don't just reject that because you're being super spiritual, all right? And so so either maybe you need to give it more time in prayer. Okay, Lord, should I? Am I being too big here? Or maybe you just need to, at some point, be fair to them and say, hey, I don't want to waste your time. I don't think this is, I don't think this is going to work. That's okay. We want to do unto others. We'd have them do unto us, and that would include, I don't want them to waste my time either, right? And at that point, now you continue on as friends in Christ. That's not the end of your relationship. It's just uh, defining the relationship properly. Okay? And this advice is not to be used as ammo for incels. If you're familiar with the incel term, involuntary celibate, the community of men who wish that they were married and they aren't, and so now they're bitter and angry at women, you can't use this to blame women. Can women be too picky? Absolutely. But who gives a prudent wife? A prudent wife is from the Lord. So be careful about the implications of your blaming, right? If you're blaming the women, God is perfectly able to bring you a wife. So ultimately, you've got to take it up with him. Be in prayer and be preparing yourself, okay? This is not ammo to blame others or to seek our own interests and talk about why it's everybody else's fault, 1 Corinthians 13. So especially in a fatherless and broken world like today, if, we don't, if young people don't know how to attract a spouse, don't go to YouTube. Humbly and openly ask wise people in the church. Talk to married people in the, in the church. Talk to your parents, especially if your parents have biblical wisdom and are walking with the Lord. We should be mature and deal in reality here. So looking for a spouse is something that can be talked about, and a wise person would be humble in asking questions and getting advice Let's act like adults here, not like high schoolers that are giggling about, you know, the cute, cute boy over there, the cute girl over there. No, we, we need marriage for the kingdom of God. That's the way God designed it. So let's talk about it. Let's be able to help each other and not just be uh, silly about it. We're here for a purpose. This is all for a purpose, okay? So single or married, we are to pray, rely on, and trust God to provide and be faithful to do our part And I've got three P's for any single person. Just remember these. Presentation, preparation, and pursuit. Okay? Presentation, be fair. Don't be a hypocrite, right? If if I want to marry someone who's attractive, am I being am I am I attractive? I'm not saying do I look like a a movie star. I'm saying do I smell like a can of fish that's been open on the shelf for a week? Do I want to marry someone who smells like a can of fish that's been if I do, then great. You know, perfect. We match. But let's not be hypocritical to where I expect you to love me the way I am. And I also expect you to sweep me off my feet every time I see you and be amazing. Okay, so one is presentation. One is preparation. And I'm talking more spiritual at that point. If you're a man, it's physical, having a house, um, being able to protect, provide physically and spiritually. And then pursuit. And this is especially for men, but also for women, not in a a weird way, but in a way of you got to get to know you got to get to know guys. you got to be available to get to know people or else 
And I mean, you can't, the prince can't come and rescue the princess in the tower if he doesn't even know the princess is in the tower. You gotta, you gotta somehow get to know some people. And don't be a hypocrite. So I was introduced to a new term recently called sexual market value that is apparently, apparently a uh, phrase used in the world to say you should stay in your league and if you're super attractive, then you can have your pick of everybody else who's super attractive. But if you're not super attractive, your market value is lower and you need to stay in your league. And that's shallow and ridiculous and completely unbiblical. But the one thing that you can apply from it scripturally would be do unto others I already talked about this a little bit in our presentation, right? If you're looking for somebody who's well put together, don't be unfair. Don't have standards for them that don't apply to me, okay? So there, there's some brief stuff to, to think about with regards to that that kind of ties up last week's. So if you want more on that, listen to last week's talk, okay? Now, I want to quickly move through biblical principles of dealing with conflict. Because conflict is going to arise, and you see it in a bunch of different areas. I, I, are you familiar with the term roast pastor? Anybody heard of roast pastor? That's a term that I, I, got, I heard that from my wife's side of the family. The idea being whoever the pastor is, you hear the sermon and then you go home and you basically talk about all the things you disagreed with the pastor in the sermon about. They call it roast pastor. It's a pretty good, it's an apt terminology, right? You don't want to do roast pastor. There's a, there's a problem there. If every week is like, okay, let's go home and unlearn everything that our silly pastor taught us, then that's an issue. That's just one conflict that you, you could look at. You could look at even disagreement in a marriage. You can look at disagreements in a courtship. You can look at disagreements over dress code, music choices, whatever the conflict is. How does scripture guide us to gel, to lubricate the friction so that we can have love and unity in the body of Christ? So couple of quick principles. I'm going to move through this really fast to try to keep us on time here. So take notes. You can't turn to all the, all the scripture references, but if you want to look these up, these are biblical principles for this. Hebrews 12, 15, no bitterness. If a root of bitterness springs up, what happens? It defiles many. That's Hebrews 12, 15. That means it's a problem. It's a big problem. And scripture tells us to take care, pay attention to those roots of bitterness. It will poison the water. It will spread like a plague. It will destroy stuff. So no bitterness. Ephesians 4, 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's another scripture I don't have the reference, but being devoted to one another in brotherly love. There is a passion that's supposed to be in the body of Christ to where I want to be at peace with you. I want to be unified with you. If there's a break in our relationship, I'm not okay with that. I'm, I'm not okay with that. I'm not going to pretend it's not there. I'm not going to sweep it under the rug. I want to come in here and feel the fellowship of the Spirit of God in our midst. And so I'm going to be diligent to preserve that unity. And I need you to be too because if I've offended you and I don't know, then I can't fix it because I don't know. And so I need you to tell me. We have to be diligent together to preserve this unity, okay? So here is... Five things, five biblical patterns for how you deal with the disagreement. Number one, love covers. Proverbs 19, 11. Man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It's glorious. That's a real man. A real man is not the guy who can win a fight with everybody because he picks a fight with everybody because every time he perceives a slight, he's like, oh, you talking about my mama? I'm going to pound you into the ground. That's not real manhood. There, there is a time. And a real man stands up for his, his wife, his kids, protects those around him, but he also turns the other cheek. He also knows when it's the right time to, you know what, I can, I'm going to cover this over in love. 
man and woman, right? Man's discretion makes him slow to anger. Is his glory to overlook a transgression. So number one, love covers. A huge amount of our conflict should fall under this umbrella. Amen. How many sins does love cover? A multitude of sins. So this is step one. This should be the bread and butter, the lifeblood of our relationships is love and grace because we have been lavished love and grace through the cross of Christ. And that should spill over onto everyone around us. Okay, so that's start there. Number two, speak the truth. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. So when we talk about love, we're not talking about a fake unity. We're not talking about sameness. We're not talking about unity because we all just don't say anything and toe the line and look the exact same. It's like the Empire in Star Wars where everybody's all the same color and they walk in lockstep and you can't even see their faces. There's no personality. Everybody's just, that, is that unity? That's not real unity. That's just sameness. That's just a cookie cutter assembly line production. That's not what we're after. God designed a body. And because of that, we want to speak the truth into each other's lives. And if I see something different than you see it, that doesn't mean I need to just can it to preserve unity. That's not preserving actual unity. No, speak the truth in love because I want to sharpen you. I want you to sharpen me. I need you. You need me. We can't do this by ourselves. So love covers. Speak the truth. We're not pursuing unity by avoiding conflict, but rather pursuing unity by loving through conflict. Speaking the truth in love. Number three is confront. So these are, your, these are biblical options, remember? Biblical options for dealing with conflict. Love covers. Speak the truth. Three is confront. Matthew 18, 15. If you're in sin, if you've offended me, or if I know you're in sin, I can see you're cheating on your, cheating on your wife, or you're embezzling money, I don't know, then I'm called to confront. Jesus says, you find your brothers in sin, go confront him. And then there's the process of church discipline. The correlating command to that is confess. You've got confront and confess. If I am offended at you or I see you're in sin, then I need to confront you. This is in the light of our first one that love covers, right? So I shouldn't be confronting you because the way you chew is really annoying to me or your skirt is two inches shorter than the standards in my household or something like that. We're talking serious sin issues here where, okay, you're, you're shaming the name of Christ. You're destroying the fellowship in the body. You're an open violation of God's word. I need to confront you. Or something where I genuinely can't overlook it. You... It, you uh, and you snapped at me over the phone, and it was really hurtful. Okay, if you can cover that, great. But if you can't, that's okay, too. You can come to your brother and say, hey, I need to make this right. Every time I see you, I remember you yelling at me on the phone that day, and I don't want that to stand between us. Okay, then confront. Deal with it. Or confess. Hey, I yelled at you on the phone two weeks ago. That was immature. Please forgive me. And so then you have, you deal with it, and forgiveness, that's speaking the truth in love. And then number five is parting company. And I honestly think people jump to number five way too quickly. I was trying to think of biblical examples where there is, where we see parting of company. And I came up with three. Acts 15, 39 is practical necessity. That's Paul and Barnabas. Paul says, I don't want to take Mark. He deserted us. Barnabas says, basically, come on, Paul, give him another chance. And there arose such a sharp disagreement among them. They had to part ways. Why? Well, is that, was that a break in their fellowship? Eh, kind of, but it was a practical necessity. Paul's leaving on a missionary journey. He's either going to take Mark or he's not going to take Mark. So they had to part company because he wasn't going to take Mark and Barnabas wasn't going to leave Mark. Practical necessity, they part ways. Okay, there's your example number one. Number two, 1 Corinthians 5.11, somebody who's living in sin and then you've got church discipline. Now there's an enforced parting of the company. You're not welcome here now until you get right with Christ. You have to 
you're shunned in a sense. Shunning has a bad reputation nowadays, but there is a proper place where I love you too much to just pretend that this is normal. Just pretend like everything's fine because it's not. And then number three is 2 John verse 10, somebody that's in the throes of heresy. They're preaching a false gospel and John says, don't even let them in your house. Those are the three examples I can think of in scripture with parting company. We don't see throughout the New Testament 18 different churches in Ephesus because they all have these fine little doctrinal distinctions. You have the church of Ephesus and they meet together. And then if you have these issues, then there was a parting of company. And those are the only three I can think of. Practical necessity, living in sin, or in the throes of heresy. Okay, so there's your five biblical options for dealing with conflict in the church. Love covers. Speak the truth. Those are not, these are not mutually exclusive. These all go together. Love covers. Speak the truth. Confront sin. Confess sin. And part company in extremely, extremely limited circumstances, as far as I can see from Scripture. Most of the time, we should be working through this stuff and growing in our unity. Ephesians 5.21, I don't have time to look it up. You'd have to look it up. I don't remember what I had that reference there for, but I have my note is humility, sharpening, edifying. That should be the, the way we interact with our, our disagreement. It should be humble. I want to learn from you. You should want to learn from me. We sharpen one another. Remember the 10 to 1 principle that's been mentioned here before, um, mostly with regards to parenting. And the idea is you should have 10 compliments for every one correction. That applies in your church life too. We are supposed to speak the truth in love, and it's soft science. This isn't from a Bible verse, but the idea being encourage one another and build each other up. Scripture does say that. And if most of the stuff I say to you is, hey, you're doing this wrong. Hey, have you ever thought about this? Hey, you might consider this. Hey, I disagree with you on this. Then at some point, I'm that guy now, right? Oh boy, here comes Gabe. What'd I do wrong now? We don't want that to be our relationship, right? We want to have... The majority of it is love, encouragement. Great job. You blessed me so much. I appreciated what you had to say. How can I pray for you? And then when the time comes, we also want to be a body that speaks the truth and says, hey, I think you're missing something here. But we want that to be in a context of love and of, of positive relationships. Okay. Remember this from Ephesians 4. We're a body, and I think one of probably the most important things for us to understand is that differences are a good thing. Differences are a good thing. That's how God designed it to be. God made us a body not so we could all be an ear. We don't need to all be an ear. We need to be different and have a core foundational unity over Scripture, over the gospel of Christ, that allows us to be different from one another in a way that honors him. As the Egriches said in their marriage counseling, it's not wrong, just different. Sometimes you can be wrong, and we need to address that, but a lot of the time, it's not wrong, it's just different. Break your conflict causers down into a couple of categories, too. Remember these categories. There's personality, there's theology, minor, there's theology, major, and there's sin. When you've got a disagreement or a conflict, look at your categories. Personality. Okay, if it's a personality thing, I probably shouldn't be offended. Most likely, right? If they, if they talk loud, they laugh funny, they whatever, they don't like the movies that I do. A lot of these personality things, those definitely should be covered in love. Then you got theology minor. Theology minor is what? You got like, um, say, theonomy, eschatology, parenting methodologies, um, whether or not your kids go to college, vaccines, women having a job different things like this, 
Those are theology issues and they're good to debate. They're good to discuss. They're not really good to ostracize each other for or break fellowship over. Then you've got theology that's major. And if you get into major theology, now you may have to part company, especially if we're talking heresy, right? Unitarianism, um, women pastors uh, endorsing LGBT ideologies, having woke doctrines infiltrating the church, stuff like that. Okay, now, now we're at a level of theology where this has to be addressed. This is not okay. And the last one is sin, right? If there's, if there's someone living in sin, then we've got, we've got a problem. But we've got to be able to distinguish the differences between fruits of the spirit, doctrine, issues of orthodoxy, and clear biblical teaching, right? That's, that's the main stuff we have to be unified on. Basically, like the Apostles' Creed, stuff that's straight out of Scripture. And then poisonous errors, like the Hebrew Roots Movement, or woke theology, critical race theory, stuff like that. We have to be able to distinguish between all that and then applicational stuff. That's going to help us in dealing with our conflicts if we can put them in the right categories. All right, so that's good for today. Um, Let's also just be aware of the propensity we have in our hearts to get negative about one another. It's so easy to tear down. And scripture calls us to encourage one another and build each other up. Our attitude towards one another and towards those outside should be one of love and of desiring to see growth and joy in Christ. One other thing on that uh, when we're talking about conflict resolution is just also acknowledge that different authority structures do make a difference in how you deal with things. It doesn't, however, remove the fact that it needs to be dealt with. So for example, you would want to deal with maybe a theological disagreement with your pastor differently than you would just somebody else in church. There's a, there's a respect due there. Or maybe a wife to her husband. If she sees something that her husband's doing wrong, the wrong on the one side would be to say, well, she should just be quiet because he's an authority over her. Well, yeah, but she's also a sister in Christ and she also has her own mind. She's not called to just be a mindless automaton, but she should have respect in the way she talks to her husband, right? Or a husband with his wife. He's in a place of authority. So should he just come in and you need to do this? Well, no, he's called to love his wife and to be understanding toward her. So the... Just remember, there are relationship dynamics that are going to be different. We have to walk those out in wisdom as we apply these principles because of the differences in the way God has structured our human relationships. So, amen. Amen. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. A place where that is happening, where there's the unity of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's a place I want to be right there. <laughs>